First Peter Bible Study, Part 7, What Christians Are, Part 1. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now this passage is the central message, the beating heart of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. It is the central part of the entire epistle. It provides the basis for the virtue ethics that St. Peter espouses and teaches. It provides the motivation behind his instructions to all of us believers. And he does it by defining the Christian in relation to Christ, and also by defining the Christian in opposition to non-believers. We're held to this higher standard of conduct than non-believers. We're treated as exiles because we are different from non-believers. And we are different from non-believers because Jesus has made us different. Because he is different. He differs from every single religious figure that you can find in the Old Testament. He's different from the prophets, from the kings, from the judges, from everybody. He is qualitatively, ontologically above all of them. And when you believe in Jesus, he pulls you up above other people. Yes. We are elevated in our status before God, from this sinful pile of miserable flesh to being a member of a holy priesthood and subjects in the kingdom of heaven. You live with a greater confidence. You conduct yourself in an elevated manner. You remember being saved daily. It's from passages like this that we have the understanding that we drown our old Adam in our baptism every single day. It's a part of our lives. So, in short, this passage opens up our understanding of the whole epistle. But it's also got a whole lot of information in only seven verses. A whole lot to cover here 
where St. Peter, kind of like St. Paul, will say something of such great consequence to Christians everywhere with only a couple verses. <laughs> it's funny how scripture works like that. So accordingly, in order to give the right kind of care to what the apostle writes, we're going to be taking this passage and breaking it down and having multiple recordings and multiple PDFs on this core of the epistle. So let's talk about today's commentary. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now when it starts with, as you come to him, a living stone, who is the living stone that we are coming to? Well, that person is Christ. He is the foundation upon which the entirety of our faith rests. Obviously, this should go without saying. There is no church, there is no Christianity without Christ himself. And he was rejected by mankind, but elevated by our Heavenly Father, to being the basis, the substance, the foundation of our belief and trust. God elevates him and says, This is my only begotten Son. As John 3 verses 13 through 15 will point out, we look to Christ the same way the ancient Israelites were told to look at the bronze serpent. Look to this and live. So the Christian comes to Christ, not the law of Moses, not to the logic trees of various philosophical denominations or to one's self, as we see with false religions, and not even to just general belief in God, right? There are tons and tons and tons of Christians out there who say, oh yes, they believe in God, and they go to church, and they have their holidays, they read their Bibles, but they never come to the point of seeing Jesus as the source of their salvation, seeing Christ as the foundation of their very existence. That's got to change. Because Jesus is precious and chosen by the Father. Now that's kind of a rare statement in the New Testament, and in fact in the Bible as a whole, that we would see something regarding the relationship between the persons of the Holy Trinity. The Father chose the Son for his ministry of atonement, and he loves him. We shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the persons of the Trinity speak to one another, they relate to one another. It strikes us as a bit odd because there's one God, but there are three persons to the one God, and each person is co-equal with the other two persons, but there's only one God. There's a lot of mystery there. And people have attempted to answer it, and every time they answer it, they give wrong answers. We'll get to that in a moment. But consider certain passages, like the baptism in the Jordan, showing God the Father speaking from the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And, of course, in Mark's Gospel, the first part of that is spoken. 
You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit rests on Jesus' shoulder. So we have a relationship between the persons of the Trinity. And St. Peter is stating that Christ is precious to the Father and chosen by him. Whereas sinful humanity, in our sin, uh, we rejected him. Yet, while Christ is most certainly chosen, we should be careful to understand that the choosing of Christ by the Father is not explained by adoptionism or subordinationism. Adoptionism is the heresy that says Jesus was originally just some guy. And at some point, he became divine. God adopted him into the God family or God substance through an act of apothesis, that is, becoming a God. Of course, this is a heresy that ignores literally every single passage in Scripture that talks about Christ as pre-existent divinity. But they want to talk about that choosing, that choosing. Somebody chose a man to be the Savior. So that must mean that Jesus was elevated. Otherwise, I mean, why would God choose himself, etc. and so forth? And we don't need that kind of explanation that requires us to ignore the scriptures. Adoptionists, of course, you can find among Mormons and some liberal theologians who almost purposefully miss the wonder of God the Son being humbled, infinitely so, to being born in a manger and dying on a cross for undeserving sinners. Instead, they want this kind of wig theory of divinity where everything is progressing and evolving and so on and so forth. It's silliness. You do get it occasionally with New Age people who want to say Christ is some ascended master that became divine through his quantum knowingness or something. To which point I say that's not what the Bible says, and we are here to discuss what Scripture teaches. And you also get subordinationism, which advances this notion that, well, Jesus is divine, but in order for the Father to choose him and for him to submit to the Father, uh, Jesus has to be less God than God the Father. He has to be a lesser part of the Godhead in some sense. Well, okay, that denies what St. Paul says, that Christ is equal to God in Philippians. So, with Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, we hear that he didn't even consider his equality with God the Father to be grasped or uh, taken in hand as something. No, no, he emptied himself of those privileges to adopt a human nature. Still being fully God, right? We don't hold to um, kenosis or kenotic Christianity. To the contrary, we hold to the communication of the natures, the communicatio idiomatum, where in his human nature we understand that he is called, but in a different sense, with his divine nature, he is already called as well. You see, Subordinationism also doesn't make sense because God is by nature infinite. So when you try to say that Jesus Christ is less God than God, and God is divided into three unequal parts, you're trying to divide infinity. 
into three unequal parts. It doesn't really work at all. And if you do so, you're saying Jesus Christ is not divine at all because he no longer fits the definition of God. And if you deny the full divinity of Christ, you make Christianity effectively worthless. Really. <laughs> the gulf between mankind and God on account of sin is infinite. That is why people who are damned spend infinity time in hell. So you need an infinite redeemer, the only being in the entire universe who could ameliorate the offense of our sin. Do you understand? You don't have an atonement without Christ being fully God and fully man. So neither adoptionism nor subordinationism are necessary or desirable for understanding the choosing of Christ in this verse. The Father is always the Father, the Son is always the Son. By virtue of these titles which our Lord has given us, we see a view of eternal generation of the Son that explains that Christ is chosen to redeem humanity without declaring him as merely human or denigrating his equality with the Father. There is a hierarchy to the Godhead according to the voluntary submission of the Son who eternally loves his Father. Does that fully explain everything? Not necessarily. But while chosen implies a position in which the chosen individual obeys, it does not follow that the chosen one is ontologically lesser or lesser in status. Again, Christ is fully God, yet voluntarily submits himself to the Father who chooses him for this task of saving us. Now, St. Peter also says we are like living stones. So, check this. If Christ is the living stone that men rejected, and again, next week we will cover more of this, how he becomes the chief cornerstone, we are told here, that we are going to be, or are being made, like Christ, being adopted into a priesthood. But a stone is a building stone. St. Peter here is suggesting that the house of God, the true temple of Christianity, is built using people, not literal architectural supplies. So since the veil in the Jerusalem temple was torn asunder on Good Friday, that's Matthew 27, verse 51. Jesus Christ's atoning death resulted in God's special earthly presence being among all of his people, not just relegated to the holiest of holies. Following this line of thinking, God builds up his church, taking the rough stones, the dirty, nasty rocks out there that are sinners, and he refines them into being the building blocks, the bricks that make up a living edifice. A non-believer is, well, good for nothing, according to God. If you don't have faith, you cannot please God at all. That's Hebrews 11, 6 and Romans 14, verse 23. But when you are a believer, now you're useful. Now God is going to make you more and more suitable for something that is greater than yourself. 
Now, it is a spiritual house, but it is not you and I being blocks. We're not inanimate objects here. So St. Peter explains further that we are a priesthood, a universal priesthood of all believers. So without breaking the distinctions that God has given us, you know, St. Peter is not contradicting St. Paul when it comes to women's ordination and stuff like that. Spoiler alert from 1 Timothy chapter 2, women cannot inhabit the pastoral office, but all believers have a kind of universal elevated status, and that comes with privileges, as well as a universal duty to render spiritual sacrifices through Christ, which we will get to. So a Christian can absolve, pray, assist, and call upon others to help their neighbor. We live a priestly life. The normative practice, of course, for a congregation is to reserve administration of the sacraments and preaching of the word to professional clergy. This is for good order in the church. But it doesn't restrict word and sacrament in all cases to the clergy alone. For instance, the Christian head of household must also take up the ministry of the word in teaching it to his household and to his children. Christians can uh, administer emergency baptisms, things like that. Christians handle the word of God together. We study it, we proclaim it, we evangelize, we do everything as a priesthood together in a manner that is altogether foreign to Old Testament believers. Remember, in the Old Covenant, there is a hard, hereditary separation between laity and the priesthood. And then having the Holy Spirit and conveying God's message to people, that was relegated to the prophets who had that special call from God. You were not allowed to just run a Bible study with your friends because you love the word. Now you are, thanks to the universal priesthood of all believers. Now, there are attempts to undo this truth. There are people who want this hard hierarchical separation between the priesthood and the laity at all times and all places. We call that sacerdotalism which, I mean, from it we get the papacy. But it's better to say it's the perspective of, hey, the laity should be the slaves of the priesthood. They want to, frankly, castrate you as a Christian. They want to cut off this elevated status at the knees. They are denying what St. Peter is saying. St. Peter says that Christ is a living stone. He says that you and I are like living stones. This is a man whose name that Christ gave him means stone carved out of the rock. And he says, that's you. We are being made to be like Christ himself in sanctification, such that what Christ has, we have as well. We are the inheritors of righteousness, eternal life, and yes, even some spiritual authority on account of faith in Jesus. Let no man say otherwise in some misguided attempt to rebuild or maintain the papacy. In calling us living stones, believers are afforded similar, if not equal, dignity to the apostle himself. Now somebody will say, 
oh, now who's the adoptionist? You're saying that mankind can become um, apothetized or become God. No, I'm not going that far. You will never be equal to Christ, but you are certainly, as a believer, elevated above non-believers. This should give all Christians a station to rejoice in. And honestly, we want to elevate other people as well. We want to spread the good word for that. Now, what is meant by spiritual sacrifices for this spiritual priesthood of all believers to conduct? Well, in a word, being a living sacrifice, as St. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. Everything we do, all that we think, ought to be oriented to our Savior's glory and our neighbor's well-being. Remember, priests didn't just go off and do their own thing. If you want a spiritual figure that lives entirely selfishly, go find a monk in his cell where, like, all he does is have a spiritual office for himself. Woo! But no, you are a priest in Christ's priesthood. Priests serve the faithful. So, we seek the well-being of our neighbors, especially our Christian neighbors, and we want to honor God. So we also have the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Psalms 116 verse 17, all about giving thanks to God, worship and praise, studying his word, going to him in prayer and thanking him, glorifying him for all that he does. That's a priestly role. When St. Peter says that these are sacrifices done through Christ, though, keep in mind it is on account of him having freed our will, sustained our faith, and in holy baptism, which St. Peter will mention in the next chapter, uh, bringing us to the new birth that makes us everything we should have been, restoring the image of God within us. So Christ says in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing at all. So we understand it is only through Christ that our works are considered good before God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Next week, we will get deeper into the text as we probably tackle another two verses here. <laughs> it really is that deep. It's amazing. I love this passage so much. But we will get into that next week. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.